0: Our scripture reading today is 2 Corinthians 5, 11-15. Our reader is John Borgen. Uh, in honor of God's word, uh, please stand. Listen as I read. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in your heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. That those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is the word of the Lord. Um, so we are uh, going to spend three weeks on, uh, uh, on, our, on exploring, refining, revisiting so- Sojourn's uh, vision. Uh, we normally do this uh, in November, um, but uh, you know, this might seem obvious, but we, we, are, we are in a transition uh, as a church family. And as uh, November was approaching, it became clear that that would not be the best way to, uh, to spend our time uh, in, in November. And um, there was a, a general sense of end, of end of January would be a good time for us, for us to do this. <clears throat> Um, we, we are uh, still in transition, and uh, so over the course of 2022, uh, there's going to be a few different opportunities for us uh, to, to give updates and to invite you uh, into the developing chapter uh, that, that sits in front of, of Sojourn. Um, you know, this spring, we're going to celebrate our, our 100th year, uh, our 100th year anniversary, and uh, you'll be hearing more about that in the weeks ahead. Um, and and I, I, I love the fact that we get to be part of a, a church family that's been around for 100 years. Uh, but one of, the, one of the great gifts of being a church that's been around for 100 years is to be able to look in the rearview mirror and to recognize that the faithful one in this story is not our local church. Uh, the faithful one in the story is God and he, his faithfulness to, to us. And the way that he has held this church together through ups and downs uh, through a lot of uh, good years and a lot of really rough years. And so uh, transition uh, is not something that people of God should actually be surprised at uh, or be too discouraged by. Uh, it is it is part of the reality of, of walking on this earth. Uh, man, we have experienced a, a good bit of disruption over these last four months. Um, and then even more over the last few years, as we think about the impact of this global pandemic and uh, and other other factors as well, and so we are, you know as a staff you know we're we're building our staff. We've we've hired a couple people over the last couple months. Uh, we're looking to hire a couple more, and uh, we are working every week uh, to to organize and to plan for uh, for this next chapter. Uh, there's a number of things that I'm, I'm really excited about, and we might uh, get a chance to, to mention those in the next two weeks, um, and, we, and we will be sharing some of that. Uh, we we want to faithfully follow Jesus. That, that's what we want to do as a church. We want to faithfully follow Jesus wherever he calls us and, and however he's designed uh, life with him to look like. That's what we want. And as we look at a passage like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and just the five verses that were read, um, in, in a lot of ways, this is, this is an invitation from Paul to do that, to, to follow Jesus with, with your whole life, with everything you've got, to serve Jesus with everything. Look, you look at verse 11, uh, and it says you know, that, that there's this uh, call to, to persuade others, that if, if, you're in, if you're following Jesus, if you're in right relationship with Jesus, like, you, you share that with other people. You, you let other people know about this good news of the gospel. Verse 13, he indicates that you might look crazy, he says we might be beside ourselves or we might be in our right mind. And his point is this. Some of the stuff is a little crazy. So some of the stuff might seem a little uh, out of the norm. Verse 14, he says that we're now controlled by the love of Christ. That, that's what following Jesus looks like. You're controlled by the love of Christ. And then verse 15, he point blank says, you no longer live for yourself. And so the, the, these verses, there's this, this invitation to, from Paul to say, if you're going to follow Jesus, like this, this is what it's going to look like. There's going to be an outward-facing reality where you're going to be persuading others. You're going to be controlled by the love of Christ. You're going to no longer live for yourself. It's, it's a really powerful p- picture. Y- you might even respond to these verses by saying, whoa, <laughs> that, that, is, that is quite something. Uh, it's a portrait of one whose whole life has been given to Jesus, whose whole life is being formed by Jesus. And Paul seems to be suggesting that this is how all the followers of Jesus should live. It does not appear at all that he is writing these verses for super Christians. It's an indication, it's an invitation that this is for all the followers, that if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what it looks like. You have a heart to persuade others. You have a willingness to let your life be controlled by the love of Christ. You're no longer living for yourself. So it's, a, it's a, big, a big invitation. But how do we get there? Well, uh, th- while we read this passage and there's, there's five full verses, I actually want to spend our time this morning on one phrase uh, from this section of Scripture. And it's found really early in verse 11. It says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Now, this is written by a guy named Paul, and Paul was, uh, you know, what you might, if you're familiar with the term missionary, uh, a missionary is one who is sent, they they take the message of, uh, in in Christianity, they take the message of Jesus, and they go to places that don't have that message, and they share that news, and Paul was the greatest missionary uh, that the first century saw, Uh, Paul had um, uh, an incredible uh, faith in Christ, an incredible interaction with with Jesus that that, uh, uh, resulted in him going all over the place with the message of of Jesus, showed incredible courage throughout his life, incredible levels of obedience, was willing to walk and follow Jesus into the, the toughest of situations. He had tons of suffering in his journey, shipwrecks and stoning and snake bites and rejection, uh, all, all kinds of all kinds of hard things uh, that Paul was willing to endure for Jesus, but all of that is the second half of his life. Do you, do you know what the first half of Paul's life looked like? The first half of Paul's uh, life was him doing everything to stop the message of Jesus. He was an opposer of the gospel. He was an opposer of the work of Jesus of the movement. Of the church. He wanted to stop Jesus and he wanted to stop Jesus' people. He even participated in killing them. You know why? Why would Paul be so frustrated with the message of Jesus? Why would Paul be so worked up, so so against it that he would actually participate in murder? Well, Paul was religious. The first half of Paul's life involved Paul being trained in the Old Testament, in the law of God. He went to the best schools that the Jewish people had to go to. And he was at the top of his class. He knew the Old Testament scriptures inside and out. And in all of that training, he was trained to see the world a certain way. Paul had a view of who the Messiah would be that actually caused him to miss the Messiah. Paul was was, was trained and taught in a way that gave him a perspective on the world, a perspective on this promise of a one to come that would rescue. He was so trained in that that he actually missed the Messiah. Until. Until something happened. Until something really crazy happened. You see, Paul met On this road, he was on on his way to persecute more Christians on a road to a city called Damascus. And Paul is on his way, and he has this incredible encounter with God. And a bright light blinds him, and Paul is stunned by it. And he has an interaction with this this voice that he eventually realizes is the God of heaven. And Paul has a, a, a conversion in that moment. Paul goes from uh, spiritually blind to spiritually seeing. But but here's what's interesting. Paul knew all about God. That's what his whole life had been about. He, He knew all about God before that encounter. He was intensely trained in spiritual things. He was living his life in religious allegiance. You see, this encounter on the road to Damascus was not just finding out that God existed. He already believed that God existed. It was something so much more than that, something so much deeper than that. Paul had a personal encounter with God. And God went from being an idea to being a reality. You know, we're in a cultural moment right now where you know, it depends on, on where you go. If, if you go to an urban center, if you go to a place on the coast or a place like Portland, Oregon, uh, there's, there's, there's a whole bunch of cities that are growing more and more secular. And less and less of a Christian presence exists in those cities. And as you, as you engage in those cities, as you have those kinds of conversations, it, it, it can almost feel like a, a different world. But in more rural parts of our country, in the Midwest where we live, there's still quite a bit of of a Christian presence. Maybe you would say a Christian remnant. And it's not uncommon at all for someone to say to me, I know know that God is, is, uh, that he exists. Or someone to say, I believe in God. Well, guess what? Paul would have said, I believe in God. Paul would have said, I believe that God exists. And then the road to Damascus happened. Something changed. Something dramatic. And it was this personal encounter with God. Where God went from being an idea to being a reality. So when Paul writes in verse 11, he says, Knowing the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, that, that is a phrase uh, that I don't know we, that we spend a lot of time on in our current cultural moment uh, within the church. Uh, I don't know that I, I hear a lot of people talking about the fear of the Lord. Uh, we, we love to talk about grace, and we should. I don't think we can talk enough about grace. We should talk about it all the time. We love to talk about the fact that God is a loving God, and he is. And we can't say enough about that. We can't talk enough about the fact that God is a loving God. But the Bible has this idea of the fear of the Lord, and it's, it's just it's scattered all throughout the Bible. You find it in all kinds of places. And Paul, at the beginning of this invitation to a life of following Jesus, he starts it off by saying, knowing the fear of the Lord. So it's almost like knowing the fear of the Lord is what leads to all of these things. Knowing the fear of the Lord is what leads me to persuade others. Knowing the fear of the Lord is what allows me to let myself be controlled by the love of Christ. Knowing the fear of the Lord is what leads me to not live for myself. What is the fear of the Lord? Well, the fear of the Lord is complex. And it has a lot more to it than our, you know, just our modern sense of fear. You might hear the phrase fear of the Lord and think that means to be scared of God. That, that would be an understandable conclusion uh, in our, you know, the way we use the word fear in our, in, our, in our language, in the English language. But the fear of the Lord in, in the scriptures is much more complex than that. And it has multiple ingredients. So, some of the ingredients that it has are the ingredient of respect, of love, of obedience. Those are all inherent as you in the Old Testament and then again in the New Testament, as you see the phrase, the fear of the Lord, inherent in that phrase is the idea of respecting God, respecting the Lord, loving the Lord, obeying the Lord. But the primary ingredient is this idea of awe or reverence. That, that the fear of the Lord has has, has tied to it this sense of, of, of a grandness of God. And there's another word in the Bible that uh, is often used to communicate the idea of the awe or the grandness of God. And that is the word glory. The glory of God. See, the fear of the Lord is cultivated when we actually see God's glory. And I think it's right to say that the Bible is pretty consumed with God's glory. And it's pretty consumed with God's glory for good reason. When the Bible talks about God's glory, it's talking about his weightiness. That's the Hebrew word for glory. That's what it actually means. It means heavy. It means weighty. And as we let the scriptures unfold, what we begin to realize is when we experience the weight of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is a logical response. When we see how weighty he is, when we see how glorious he is, then this, the fear of the Lord is the natural outcome. And the Bible is inviting us to see the God, that the God of heaven is bigger than us, that he is heavier than us, that, that compared to anything else, God, God is permanent, God is real, God matters more. Here's an illustration. If an object that is heavier than water bumps into water, then it moves the water, right? Uh, maybe uh, a, good, a good recent example. The, the underwater earthquake in the South Pacific uh, last week. Uh, maybe you saw some of these pictures. But check these out. These are satellite pictures of the underwater earthquake that happened. And as the power from that earthquake ripped through the seabed, go back a couple pictures there, as it, it ripped through the, the seabed, look at that water displacement. They, they caught this on satellite. It's a pretty impressive uh, set of pictures. And that last one is, uh, is a horizontal, uh, horizontal picture that spews up into the sky. But as that earthquake ripped through the bottom of the floor of the ocean, it moved all of that water. And, and, and one, one article actually said you might call it a waterquake. That this earthquake turned into a waterquake. And what happened? A tsunami and a bunch of those islands in the South Pacific got tsunami warnings. The earthquake became a water quake. The, 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 the power of that was greater than the water, so it moved the water, and off the water goes. The, because the object has more glory. Like, that, that would be a way of saying it. The earthquake, the, the power from the earthquake had more glory than the water, and it made the water quake. It changed it. It moved it. Here's the point. When you have a personal encounter with God, it will change you. It will move things around inside of you if you've had a personal encounter. Look at what happened when the reality of God came into Paul's life. He was rearranged. He went from being the greatest persecutor of the church to being the greatest greatest promoter of the church from wanting to shut down the message of the gospel to wanting everyone to hear the message of the gospel. All all his internal furniture was moved around. His view of himself, his view of history, everything changed. If you go through the the New Testament and you read some of Paul's sermons, listen to how Paul talks about the Old Testament. Listen to what, what he sees happening on the pages of the Old Testament. Paul would never have seen his history. Because the Old Testament is Israel's history. Paul would never have seen their history that way. But after this encounter with God, after he saw the glory of God, it moved him around. It rearranged him. It reoriented him. Everything changed. Another example would be the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah was a prophet of Israel. He knew all about God. But something happened in Isaiah 6 that changed everything. In Isaiah 6, we read about Isaiah, who was a prophet of Israel, having a personal encounter with God, where God went from an idea to a reality. Because just like Paul, he saw God's glory. In Isaiah 6, what we find out is that Isaiah walked into the temple and he saw the Lord, it says, high and lifted up, And he saw the Lord's train filling the temple. And Isaiah did not say, oh, there really is a God. That that is not how Isaiah responded to that. Isaiah already believed that there was a God. He already had that piece to the puzzle. What happened when Isaiah saw God's glory is he said, whoa. I am a man of unclean lips. I don't even belong in here. This God is... Heavier than I ever expected. He's grander than I ever expected. And that interaction with God changed Isaiah's life. If you read the rest of Isaiah 6, you see how it reoriented his posture towards the God of heaven. He already believed that there was a God. You James, In the book of James, it tells us that the demons believe that there's a God. Believing that there's a God, that, I mean, that's a good start. But if you had a personal encounter with this God, has this God become more than just an idea? Has he become a reality? You know, something interesting happens in the Bible when God's presence specifically comes down. There is actually earthquakes. It happens in the Old Testament. An example of it would be Mount Sinai, Exodus 19. God shows up. In a, in, a, in, a, in a specific way. And his, his glory shakes the, shakes the ground. Shakes the mountain. It happens in the New Testament. In the upper room. In Acts chapter 2. Jesus has died. He's gone to the cross. He's died. He's been buried. He rose again. He spent weeks with his disciples. He's now gone back to the Father. And in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit comes. The, the presence of God. And what happens at Pentecost? The room in which the disciples were in. It shook Earthquake, there's examples, it's it's a pattern. The, the, The point is that God is more glorious, he is more weighty than anything. Anything compared to God becomes lighter. And wherever God's reality comes down, everything is shaken to its core. A few years ago, I had the privilege of preaching through the book of Acts, and we got to Acts chapter 2. That, that, was, that was one of those, those powerful moments of just spending the time asking this question of what would it have been like to be in that room when the Spirit showed up and it literally shook the room. The presence of God, the people of God, shaken to their core. So, God as an idea or God as a reality. What's the difference? It's a matter of glory. It's a matter of weight. But let me try to invite you to think about it in a more specific way. Here's some language. God as an idea is lighter than you. God as an idea is lighter than you. See, See, part of the evidence that you have brought God into your life as just an idea, as just a concept, is that you move him around. That you shape him. That you, you fit him in around your existing patterns, around your existing desires. He doesn't move you around, him, around. You, you move him around. If you believe in God and it hasn't changed you very much, maybe he's just an idea to you. You know, maybe you've heard people say this. Maybe, maybe you've said this. I can't believe in this part of the Bible. You know, it, that, that's, that's so regressive. Society has moved on. We, we, can't, we can't believe that part anymore. Come on. Get on the right side of history. What, what, what are you doing? You can't, you can't believe that. You know, our, our beliefs are often formed by our current place in history. Our cultural moment. You know, just FYI, your, your great-grandchildren are probably going to be just as embarrassed by some of your ideas as you are embarrassed of your great-grandparents' ideas. It's, it's, it's how it works. If, if you're coming to God's word and saying, "Oh, I can believe that part, but I can't believe that part, I'll believe that part, but I can't believe that part," then you don't have a real God. You have a God as an idea. You don't have a God who can actually change your deepest held beliefs. You don't have a God who can contradict you, who can disagree with you, who can step on your toes and actually change you. You're making him fit into you. In other words, you still have more glory than your idea of God. You are more weighty than God. But see, God as a reality is heavier than you. When the real God comes into your life, when you actually get into the presence of the real God, things change. Things you've always believed and that you've believed very deeply are changed by the word of God. Like this is what happened to Paul. Paul was at the top of his class. Paul was given a perspective on the world and a perspective on the Messiah. And when he had a real encounter with the God of heaven, it changed. It changed things that he had been trained in his whole life. Perspectives that he'd had his whole life. What, what, what has changed about you? What, what, what about this, this, the, the reality of God, the weightiness of God? What's been shifted in your life? It shifts because God has more glory than your beliefs. Instead of God fitting into your agenda, God becomes your new agenda. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that you want, it doesn't mean that everything in your agenda is bad. We'll we'll talk more about that next week. It just means that God is the new agenda. That what God says is good is what you agree with him is good. And you align your life to that. You let him move you around. If God is heavier than you, then author Robert Mulholland Jr. is right when he says this. This means that our, in the quotes on on the screen behind me here, this means that our spiritual journey is not our setting out by gathering information and applying it correctly to find God as an object out there to be grasped and controlled by us. It's a journey of learning to yield ourselves to God and discovering where God will take us. Like, look at that quote. How many of us think that this is some sort of a journey of us controlling God, of us getting our arms around who he is, locking him in, letting him do certain things, not letting him do other certain things. It's a faith walk. And when you have an encounter with the God of heaven, you're going to be more like Isaiah, who says, Whoa, who is this? So heavy, so glorious. It's a journey of learning to yield ourselves to God and discovering where God will take us. When you experience the weightiness of God, when He becomes a reality to you, He's the one moving you around. Has God God gone from being an idea to being a reality for you? You'll never be able to faithfully follow Him unless it has. Has it happened to you? you know when it happened to you? Now, I want to be careful here because you might say, well, I never exactly had an experience just like Isaiah or Paul. Some of you know that my own stories, I grew up in a, in a pastor's home and heard about Jesus. Uh, I don't remember a day where I didn't know uh, the story of Jesus. But in 2009, when I was 33 years old, uh, I, I had quite quite a, a summer and God did some things in my life that I, I still to this day look back at 2009 and recognize that, that, that my encounter with God in 2009, it literally changed everything for me. And some of you have said to me, like, I've never had that. I never had that kind of point in time thing. I, I never had an interaction like Paul on the road to Damascus. I never had something like Isaiah where I saw the, the glory, the, the weightiness of God like that. Yeah. All right. OK. But, but guess what? That is not the point, because nobody else had these experiences either. Look look at Isaiah and Paul. They're not the same. They're not the same experiences. Turn to another prophet. Look, Look at Jeremiah. If you were to go to Jeremiah 1, you're going to see Jeremiah have an interaction and a personal encounter with the God of heaven when God becomes a reality to him. And God calls out Jeremiah, and he calls him to obey him. But his interaction with Jeremiah is very, very different than his interaction with Isaiah. They have different experiences. You want to know why? Because they are different people. When God interacts with Isaiah, he says to Isaiah, the, 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 what Isaiah receives from the Lord is Isaiah realizes, I'm, a, I'm cocky. I'm cocky. I don't belong to be in here. I'm, I'm an arrogant man. And he was. He was, from a, a, he was an elitist. He, he, had a, he had position and power you know what's true of Jeremiah? Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. Jeremiah had like an inferiority complex. And in Jeremiah 1, you don't know what God says to Jeremiah? So God says to to, to Isaiah, you better start trembling. Do you know what he says to Jeremiah? Stop trembling. So the interaction, the way that God's at work in you is going to be unique. It's going to be unique to you. If you hop back to the Old Testament and you were to look at God's design for the family... In the book of Deuteronomy, do you know what God says? He says, here's my plan. My plan is that parents would teach their kids about Jesus so that they grow up to follow and obey Jesus. So they would would grow up to to recognize the Lord and who he is and what he's doing in the world. Now, you know what that means? That means that when your three and four and five and six-year-old child gets exposed to the gospel, they might not have a Damascus kind of experience. They might, by God's grace, actually be exposed to the personal encounter with God from their earliest of days and actually not have that kind of a dramatic experience because they're already in in communion. They're already aware of the greatness and the grandness of God because of faithful parents, because of faithful sojourn kids' workers. You don't think that's the work of God, too? You don't think that's an invitation to seeing God as a reality? Don't get too caught up on, did I have an experience like Isaiah? Did I have an experience like Paul? Did I have an experience like Matt? That's not the question. The question is, has God gone from being an idea to being a reality? The way God gets your attention may be different, but it's still the right question. Has he gotten your attention? Are there areas of your life that he's contradicting? Are there areas of your life where he's changing you? Has he realigned your agenda? Has that happened? You know, if you read the Bible and you don't disagree with anything, I mean, I guess there's two options. One is, you're just a really obedient person. The other is, you're reading it with blinders on. And you're filtering out either the realities of who you are or the realities of what God is calling you to. Does God move you around or are you moving God around? Now, you might say this all sounds right, but I can't, I, I can't let go of my life like that. Maybe you say my, my life is pretty good right now. I, like way more positive than the negatives. I don't, like, don't want to rock the boat. Why would I mess up this? You know, why would I mess the plan up? The plan's working. I'm going to retire early. I'm going to not have to stay in you know, sub degree uh, sub freezing temperatures all winter. Like my, my plan's working. Why would I mess this up? Somebody else in here might say, I feel like I'm hanging on by a thread, and I can't afford another shakeup. I don't know what he might do. And I'm out of margin. I, I, don't have, I, I, I can't afford the, bro- the boat to be rocked. Well, I said this a minute ago. Every time the glory of God shows up in the Bible, there's, there's, a, there's an earthquake. There's a shakeup. But there is one that stands above all the others. In Matthew 27, <clears throat> verse 45, we read this. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. And at the ninth hour, Jesus Christ said, as he's hanging on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and rocks split. You know, the temple was so shaken. The doorpost, the threshold, the veil was ripped. What's happening? I'll I'll tell you what's happening. Before Jesus died on the cross, he was in the garden. And when Jesus was in the garden, he said, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. Jesus' life is coming apart Jesus Christ was shaken by the judgment of God. Jesus saw what was coming on the cross where he would take the sin of the world upon his shoulders and in the garden, Jesus is sweating drops of blood. You see, this is part of the message of the gospel. Jesus first came not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment and to bear judgment for us to take all of our sin and all the sin of the world upon his shoulders. See, if Jesus did not do that, If Jesus did not bear our judgment, then the weight of God's glory would crush us. It would destroy us. When Isaiah shows up in the temple and he sees the glory of God, he says, I got to get out of here. This is going to kill me. It's too big. It's too heavy. It will crush me. Isaiah's right. Isaiah didn't belong in there. But Jesus Christ has actually won for us the forgiveness of our sins He's actually won for us the approval of God. He's actually taken from us our judgment so that now the glory of God doesn't crush us. It's actually good for us. Jesus was shaken to the depths so that you and I could be secure, so that sin could be atoned for, so that we could have the reorientation that happens when the glory of God comes into our life. If it's really true that we're accepted, by God, in Christ, not on the basis of our performance, then now the holiness of God is beautiful to us. The glory of God isn't scary to us. It's awe-inspiring. It stirs in our hearts a gratefulness and a gratitude, a longing, a willingness to let it move us around instead of us trying to move it around. Yeah, it reorders us, and it reorders our priorities. It calls for changes. But we realize that it's actually what we need. And that this morphing, this this adjustment, this formation that God wants to take us through, it's actually for our good. That, That the weight of his glory, that the fear of the Lord, it's what we've been longing for our whole lives, whether we know it or not. You know, there's another earthquake that happens. Jesus on the cross he cries out. and At that moment, uh, the veil is torn. The earth shook. Rocks are split. But a couple days later, Jesus rises from the dead. And it happens again. Another earthquake. The earth is, is quaking. The earth is moving with the glory and the power and the significance of God's work in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it changes everything. Because if Jesus Christ has actually done that for us, if his death was actually sufficient for our sins to be addressed and for us to be brought to God, then we are in the best situation that we could ever imagine. And the God of heaven, the God who created us, the God who knows what is good for us, is actually out for our good. And when he wants to move us around, he wants to move us around for our good. I might not like it, I might want to kick against it, but it's a gift. Now, going forward in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about where we're at as a church right now, where we're trying to go. I want us to be about God's mission in the world, but listen, I want you to have a personal encounter with the God of heaven. I want the God of heaven to be a reality to you, not just an idea. We could come up with all kinds of of initiatives and programs and all kinds of things that reach all kinds of uh, mercy ministries and mercy initiatives. We we can do all kinds of activity. But if you don't have a personal encounter with the God of heaven, then we have, in a sense, won, won, won the world and lost our souls. Verse 11 says, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Listen, you you, you want to have a genuine uh, involvement, engagement with the world that you're in? Know the fear of the Lord. Have a personal encounter with the God of heaven. Recognize his weightiness and his glory and see what Christ has done to make that good news for you and good news for me. Do you know the weighty glory of God? And if so, then joining him in his work in the world makes all the sense. It it makes perfect sense. So as we come to this table and we take this bread and we drink from this cup, we are reminded that because Jesus did what he did, he has now turned the glory of God from something we should be afraid of to something that's actually an invitation to what we were made for. If our servers would please come, let's pray. God, we thank you for this bread and for this cup. We thank you for the invitation that they are to remember Jesus' work on our behalf. That what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection, that him standing in our place, that him going to that cross and taking the sin of the world, and then a few days later conquering sin and death and Satan and all of our enemies, God, that has literally changed everything. God, would you help us to see it? God, maybe it'll be like Paul. Maybe it'll be like Isaiah. Maybe it'll be like Jeremiah. Or maybe it would be just perfectly unique to our situation and our stories. But God, would you help us to move from you as just an idea to you as a reality? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.